When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Barbara Mujica about Miss Del Rio. Barbara is the best-selling author of numerous novels, including Frida, which was translated into 17 languages. She is also an award-winning short story writer, an essayist, whose work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Miami Herald, among others. A professor emerita of Spanish at Georgetown University, she grew up in Los Angeles and lives in Bethesda, Maryland. I hope you enjoy our conversation. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome, Barbara. How are you today? I am fine. I am so glad you're here. I loved Miss Del Rio, and I cannot wait to talk about it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I loved writing it. It's like all novels. It's always an ordeal, and then it's over, and you're thrilled. <laughs> exactly. And you forget some of the ordeal, right? It's like having children. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's start out with you giving me a quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet. Okay, this is a book that uh, tells the story of Dolores del Rio, who was uh, the first important, really important Latina 
star in Hollywood. Uh, she came to Hollywood in 1925. And it's told uh, from the perspective of her close friend and hairdresser, Maria Amparo, whom she calls Mara. Dolores del Rio, uh, her friends called her Lola, uh, came to Hollywood. She was actually married. She was uh, born in Mexico. She married Jaime del Rio when she was 16 years old. Uh, like all Mexican women at the time, she expected to have children to get married. After she got married, she expected to have children and raise a family. Uh, but she had a miscarriage, and the doctor told her she couldn't have any more children. And so one of the things that I really admire about her is that she was an enormously resilient woman. And when things didn't go her way, she, she wasn't devastated by events. She found a different path. Uh, and so uh, she started dancing and singing. And one time at a party, she uh, met Edwin Carraway, who was a Hollywood director. Uh, they were in Mexico, but he invited her to Hollywood, and she wanted to go. And her husband, Jaime, wanted to be a screenwriter, and so he wanted to go too. And they both went to Hollywood. And uh, Dolores del Rio was an almost instant success, because at that time, Hollywood was looking for a female Latin lover. Ruto Valentino was extremely popular. Uh, he was a screen icon. He was a heartthrob. And the studios wanted uh, a, a female Latin lover like him. And so she, uh, Lola had, she, she was very talented. She was a wonderful dancer and singer and a, a wonderful comic actress. And she was successful right away. She spoke English uh, with an accent. She later learned to speak good English. She, at first, it was difficult for her, but it didn't matter because at the time, movies were silent. And, uh, and, and so she was successful, but Jaime, as a, as a screenwriter, uh, was not successful. And that put a damper on her marriage. It was, it was uh, a lot of pressure on Jaime. He got tired of being Mr. Dolores del Rio, and eventually they got a divorce. And that was devastating for her because she, uh, although she knew she had to separate from Jaime because he, he, he just uh, couldn't cope with her success. But she loved him, and she, uh, she, she was very saddened by how things turned out. Uh, he moved to New York, and then he moved to Germany, uh, and she continued with her career, and then she married Cedric Gibbons, and he was a very successful uh, set designer. Uh, he designed the Oscar, and he won a number of Oscars, and he was, uh, he was extremely successful at a time when her star started to wane. Because as we get into uh, the early 30s, what happens is that the country uh, is beginning to fear that we're going to get into a war. The country becomes uh, xenophobic. And people like Dolores del Rio, foreigners in general, have trouble getting roles. And Mexicans in particular are vulnerable because of the communist influence on the Mexican Revolution. And uh, Frida was friends with uh, Diego and uh, Diego Rivera and Frida, Frida Kahlo, and they, they were communists. And although Dolores herself was really apolitical, she was not interested in politics, but just by being friends with them, she was viewed as suspicious. 
And so she she was investigated by the House of Un-American Activities, and that was very traumatic as well. But she came, she came out of it. The studios helped her, and she, she came out of that. But because the country was very uh, reluctant, the studios were reluctant to give roles to uh, foreign actresses and actors. Uh, for example, Marlena Dietrich couldn't get roles. She finally started working for the USO. Greta Garbo went back to Sweden. But Dolores del Rio, as I said, was very resilient. And she picked herself up and went to Mexico. She went back to Mexico uh, where she had contacts. She had Frida Kahlo. She had Diego Rivera. She had lots and lots of friends and relatives. And uh, she went into the movies there. At that time, Emilio Fernandez was making a new kind of film. And Dolores del Rio at that time was getting tired of making Hollywood movies which were vapid and which she played, uh, they, they were silly. They were entertainment, uh, but that's, that's all they were. And she played the silly, sexy heroine. But she really wanted to make socially relevant films. And Emilio Fernandez, although he was a very difficult director to work with, but he also was a visionary and he was making that kind of film. And so she made a number of very important films with him. She became one of the most important figures in the golden age of Mexican cinema. Uh, she made the film, she starred in the film uh, Maria Candelaria, and that, that film won, uh, the Golden Palm hadn't been established. It won a, the, the prize at uh, the Cannes Film Festival. So she, she, was, she was a person who, really picked herself up after every fall and continued on. Eventually, uh, she met a man that she really loved, uh, Lou Riley. They stayed together for the rest of, uh, their, uh, uh, to the rest of her life. She died in 83. He died after that. Uh, she went back to Hollywood. She made movies in Hollywood. She made, uh, she made a movie with Elvis Presley in which she had to play his mother, which was kind of traumatic for her because she'd always played the uh, sweet, beautiful, young, sexy ingenue. And then now he had, she had to play mother. And then in The Children of Sanchez, uh, she had to play a grandmother. So time caught up with her like everybody else. But she really, she be, she really became a legend. And then at the very end of her life, she still continued wanting to do something important, something for other people. And she started a series of daycare centers. And this is something I learned as I did my research about her. I didn't know this about her. And it was, it was exciting to learn it. She uh, started a, a lot of daycare centers in Mexico for the children of women who worked in the movie and theater industries, in, uh, mostly in menial jobs, uh, seamstresses, carpenters, janitors, and these people, most of them, they came from the countryside where they had uh, a structure to their lives. They had, they had family, they had mothers and aunts and cousins uh, who, who helped with the children. But when they came to the city, they had no place to leave their children and they had to work. And so um, a lot of them left their children in what they called guarderias, which, were, which are basically holding places where the, there was one woman and 40 children and they didn't get any personal attention at all. And they, uh, they, they were just there. But the kind of daycare center 
that Lola started was much different. She took it very seriously. She read Jean Piaget. She read uh, Maria Montessori, and she learned about early childhood development. Uh, She raised the money, and she started these daycare centers that were real Montessori-type learning centers where the kids would be nurtured, they would be educated, and they wouldn't just be looked after. She she was really a remarkable person. At the end of her acting career, she was given a huge, in Mexico, they did a huge celebration, 50 years of Dolores del Rio. She really was a legend. She was, and she did so many different things. And I was completely unfamiliar with her until I read your book. So I was very glad you had written it. Well, thank you. (laughs) That's one of the reasons I wrote it. Uh, Maybe the main reason is because I thought that Dolores del Rio was really a fascinating person. And she was a big star. She was a household name. She was a fashion icon. And now, like so many of those stars who really made a contribution, uh, people don't remember them. And I, you know, when I, I, I have taught for many, many years. And I am always amazed when I mention one of these people to my students. Uh, even somebody as recent as Jackie Gleason, when we talk about humor, I talk about different kinds of humor. I teach literature, and I'm talking about different kinds of humor. And I mentioned uh, Jackie Gleason and his skits on the poor soul, and you know why we feel compassion for this character, etc. The students have no idea who he is. They, they, you know, they have it. It was way before their time. I remember Jackie Jackie Gleason from when I was a kid. But even when I talk about the Vietnam War, these kids don't know anything about it. You know, the students today, they were born in the year 2000. So they they have no memory of of any of these things. So I wanted to bring Dolores del Rio to the attention of the public because I think that she was very special. Well, I'm guessing that ended up being a much larger project than you envisioned initially, because as I was reading, I just felt like I learned so much Mexican history from when she was born there and everything that was happening. And then kind of sent her on her way from Mexico. I love the golden era of Hollywood. So I've actually read a ton about that, but I was not aware of her, nor some of the different things that you referenced when they were switching from silent films to talkies, Mm -hmm. like the thing that I think they did on the radio, maybe where eight or 10 of them got together. Like I was completely unfamiliar with that event. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about it because I found it fascinating. But then on to Mexican cinema. So, I mean, there was just so much. I bet it was quite the ordeal to get this book written. Well, it was it was an ordeal in that, you know, doing constant reading. And, and I, I think the ordeal is not writing the book as much as writing the book in the midst of doing a thousand other things. Yeah, that's true. All of us are, are working. We're teaching. We're, you know, I'm writing scholarly articles and scholarly books and, and, and a bunch of other things. And I have children and grandchildren and three dogs and, <laughs> you know, and just get, getting it done in the midst of all of that is is always uh, a challenge, but it was it was tremendously satisfying uh, to write the uh, Mexican history. I have taught for years and years at Georgetown, and I teach a course. I, I taught a course on Mexican history and culture, and I taught a course on uh, Frida Kahlo and the art of the Mexican Revolution. So uh, naturally, in all of that research, Dolores del Rio came up. And then when I wrote my novel, Frida, uh, Dolores del Rio also came up, and she's a character, a minor character uh, in, in that novel. She was, she was associated with both, with both Frida and 
Diego romantically. So that part was not new. Uh, it was very interesting. I'm from Los Angeles. It was the first time I wrote a book that took place almost entirely, or that takes place almost entirely in Los Angeles. And it was really fun to read about old Los Angeles and and these places that I know, but, you know, they were farmland, you know, back in the 20s. And then how the studios got, you know, were built up and, and how, how, you know, how they took, how Hollywood uh, was built. You know, this Hollywood was, was a, uh, I did a lot of reading about it. I had a lot of it in the book that I had to take out because it was just too much. But Hollywood was really a, um, you know, a residential zone, a very luxurious, luxurious residential zone. One of the first to have, you know, trash pickup and that kind of thing, things that we take for granted. And it had, and it had large houses with tennis courts and swimming pools and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, and then, of course, they put up this big sign, Hollywood Land, in Hollywood. But 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 that was farmland before, and uh, it was it was it was settled a lot by a lot by German farmers, you know, who who were who were coming to look at, looking for a new place to to settle. And and they built up this this area. It's, it's it's actually quite interesting, yeah. And then the, the formation of you mentioned uh, the Dodge Hour, the radio program, the United United Artists. People don't realize sometimes that United Artists is such an old institution. Uh, but all of these actors decided that they had been working for studios. The studios were making all of the money, and the studios were calling all the shots. And so they wanted to form their own organization and make their own films. And so they formed United Artists, but uh, none of them was actually an entrepreneur. Uh, and, and none of them actually knew how to make a go of it until, until later when they started getting people in who were really businessmen and could do it. So it was Mary Pickford who, who organized this, and then she couldn't attend because her, her mother, I think her mother had died. But all of these actors got together, uh, Charlie Chaplin and Dolores del Rio, and uh, you know, a whole lot of them got together to make this radio program so that the public could hear their voices. A lot of actors were terrified, even American-born actors who had no problem with English. They were terrified that the public would not like their voices. And so that was another challenge that Dolores del Rio uh, faced that some actors uh, and some foreign actors did not did not succeed but she actually gamed the system by singing instead of speaking i loved that and uh and she sang uh ramona and you can you can hear that on the internet if you want to hear her singing ramona it's it's on you know it's 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 on the internet uh, and I've listened to it, I think, 5,000 times. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's very lovely. And the audience, uh, there are all kinds of problems. The, the audience acted, re- reacted negatively but, uh, on the most. Mo- most people reacted very negatively to this, to this program because, uh, you know, the, the, it, it was too, well, the, the connection was bad. Some people couldn't hear it. There were storms in the Midwest. Uh, some actors gave speeches or they recited uh, monologues from Shakespeare and the general public wasn't interested and they found that horrible. But everybody loved, most people loved the song 
Ramona, and it became a bestseller. People, you know, people bought it for their, you know, they had photographs. And so not only was the film a success, but the recording was a success. I've always been completely fascinated with this transformation from silent film to the talkies, because I think it must have been, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. So for us, we're like, how could you not think this was going to be successful? And, you know, that would be the next step. But there was a lot of pushback initially. Some people thought it would go forward. Some people thought things would stay silent. So, and then, you know, that transformation, and as you said, obviously it was difficult for foreign born people, but it was really difficult for some people that were born here as well, whose voices really weren't, I don't know what the right word is, right for that type of thing, you know, where they could be fine when they were silent, but as soon as they started speaking, it didn't work so well. And I just loved all of that that you talked about because you definitely included some things I'd never heard of before. Well, Charlie Chaplin was an interesting example because we think of Charlie Chaplin as such uh, a versatile, in control kind of actor, but he was terrified and he stuttered horribly during this program. And he refused to make talking movies for years afterwards. And it wasn't until he made the great, well, he finally made the great dictator. Uh, and that was, a, that was a success. And that really, you know, that really launched his, uh, a, new, a new time in his career. But even that is most, I mean, that's mine. Right. And, th- and that's what he was really great at was mime. This, this Dodge Brothers program was, was really hell for him. He was terrified. He, he, he did a horrible job and people hated it. So, uh, you know, his career could have been over, but you know, some of these people were very uh, ingenious. They were resilient and they were creative. They found new ways to move ahead. And he did. And they understood, and Lola does this some of the time too, that sometimes you have to lay low for a little bit and then pop back up. So sometimes if things aren't going quite the way you need them to, give it a little bit and then show back up and keep going. And I think she was the master of doing that. Oh, she was. They called her Lagata, like her mother. They called her mother Lagata also, the cat, mm-hmm. because uh, they always landed on their feet. Uh, the, these, were, these were women who, you know, who, who knew how to make it work. Her, her mother also, she came from a very wealthy, conservative family. They were not on the side of the revolution, but her mother realized very quickly that things were changing in Mexico and that the, the politically the country was moving left and that power was going to be in the hands of the people and, and that she had to get with this, this new movement. You know, so they, they, they did. They, they went with it. Uh, she was lucky. Her cousin was Madero, who became president of Mexico. Even though he was from a wealthy family, uh, you know, he he led this this leftist movement, but he 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 didn't last long. He was assassinated. I was like, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was one series of assassinations after the other. But 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 he had. But this was a man. He was a thoughtful man. He you know he lived abroad. He lived in the states. He he. He had he had a, a clear idea of what a democratic country should look like, but like many wars, right? The revolution, you know, got the the violence got uncontrollable. So, and uh, if you've ever read the book Los de Abajo, uh, the 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 book about the as as uh, Asuela is a classic about the Mexican Revolution. He talks about a rock rolling down. A hill, and that's what the revolution is like. It starts rolling and it rolls slowly, but then you know it picks up steam, and then it just rolls and rolls faster and faster, and, so, and it's uncontrollable. And that's that's what war is like. 
So she sensed that and she switched. Right. And I think I was not very familiar with that part of Mexico's history. But I think that that story about a revolution and it getting out of control has played out in so many different countries over time. You know, that there's like a great movement and there's important reasons behind it, but then things kind of end up going sideways and it's hard to control it once it gets going. Right. Well, you talk in your author's note about writing a biofictional novel and you created Mara as a way to tell Lola's story. How did that come about? Well, I admit that I started writing this in the third person. And, you know, you have to, it's like the pentimenti in a painting. <laughs> you know, you realize you've made a mistake. You think, oops, I better paint over this. I, I, the book was too much like a biography. It was too, too much like a documentary. And so I realized that what I really needed because in in my opinion, an actress's life is not really that interesting in that what do actresses do? So I was raised in Hollywood, so I have to say my, I don't have stars in my eyes. You know, I, I knew a lot of I knew a lot of girls who were actresses. You know, so so they, they play one role after the other and they go to one party after the other and they have one boyfriend after the other. But that for a novel gets boring. And somebody like Lola, who was very wealthy and made a lot of money. I mean, she inherited money. She came from a wealthy family, but she also made a lot of money in Hollywood and she invested it. And she, she, you know, she knew her mother was a good money manager and her father was a banker and she didn't have children. So a lot of the things that happened during that period really didn't affect her. And so the drama of the period, she really didn't experience. So aside from the revolution, which which she did experience and which really sets the whole story in motion when she escapes from Durango and goes to Mexico City. But the other things that happened during that period, uh, for example, uh, the Depression, that really didn't touch her. The investigations for the House of Un-American Activities, uh, that did. But the polio epidemic didn't. She didn't have children. People were terrified that their children would become paralyzed. And then leading up to World War II, people were afraid that their loved ones would be drafted or killed in the war. And they were afraid that, you know, that their, their cities would be bombed. And Lola avoided all of those things. And so I th- thought I needed a character that was just kind of an ordinary person who would experience all of those things and also would put some distance between Lola and the rest of the world, who would kind of see, the, see Lola as, as we see her. We as regular folks who, you know, get up in the morning and make breakfast and walk the dog and whatever else we do. And I always ask myself when I start to write a, a biofictional book, what would it be like to know this person? What would it be like? For example, I wrote a, I wrote a book, I have a novel about St. Teresa called Sister Teresa. What would it be like to have to know somebody who claimed to levitate. I mean, what if? What about if you had a friend who suddenly thought she was levitating or was levitating? I mean, how would you react to that? <laughs> well, that would be a surprise. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty astounding. And what would it be like to have a friend who was a movie star who was always going to you know who's always going to parties, who was always going to openings, whose picture was always in the paper. Uh, who had to look perfect all the time, uh, who went from one handsome man, 
maybe not in reality, maybe just in the movie mags, but uh, you know, she was always paired with these with these handsome men. What would it be like to know a person like that when your life isn't like that? You you know, you you have kids and you have to put a meal on the table and you have you know, you have a husband who's lost his job during the depression and then is drafted. What would it be like to be that person who has a best friend who's like Lola? And so that's where Mara came in. Uh, Mara is very much a regular person. Mara is a hairdresser. My mother was a hairdresser. Mara lives in a world that I know very well, that I lived in myself. And she, she has to worry about, you know, losing her job. She has to worry about clothing and feeding her kids. Uh, she has to worry about her husband. She, they're terrified, you know, just as we're terrified of COVID, she's terrified of polio. There were pictures in the paper all the time of children who were paralyzed by polio. And, 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 it, and it was terrifying. It was a terrifying time. And then the war starts. And so I think that what this character does is tie the reader to reality, tie Lola to the social reality that exists while she's going to parties, you know, at the Hearst Mansion and, and all these other <laughs> and all these other places. Hanging out with Orson Welles. Yeah, hanging out with Orson Welles and, you know, and doing all these these exciting things that are I mean, that are stressful and that she I mean she's 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 under a lot of stress. Orson Welles was was a horrible person to live with, and and uh, and then when she goes to Mexico, Fernandez um, is a horrible person to work with. But but we all have to work with difficult people sometimes. But but the but the real social realities of the depression and the war uh, and the pandemic uh, th- those are things that she didn't have to deal with, but everybody else had to deal with. And so this keeps the novel, I think, anchored in a reality that the reader can identify with. That's so interesting. And I hadn't thought about it that way. I thought of it from the perspective of making her more personable because you're introducing her through a friend's eyes or through someone, you know, she knows well. So it's a little bit easier to document what she was like as a person. But I hadn't thought about kind of the day-to-day stuff and all of the history that was happening. Well, I mean, an, 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 another really important part of it is to is to give her some some dimension, you know, to give right. some right. Uh, dimension to the to the character. So you're seeing her, you know, from somebody else's eyes. When you write bio, uh, biographical fiction, the writer is aware, should be aware, and I think in most cases is aware that she cannot get into the skin of the person she's writing about. She is not that person, right? She is not. She personally did not live those experiences. It's hard enough, I think, to understand what's going on in your own life. But when you're trying to understand what's going on in somebody else's life, you're bound to misinterpret. And so I think it's important to recognize that subjectivity and build it into the narrative in some way. And so the way I did it was through Mara. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying this is what happened to. Lola, or this is what Lola thought. It's always what Mara thinks Lola thinks, or sees, or how she interprets what Lola does. It adds that subjectivity that I think is important for this kind of a novel. I agree completely. And I think that the reader appreciates that. 
Well, I always love talking about titles and covers because I think there's a lot more that goes into them than people sometimes realize. Did you start out with Miss Del Rio as the title or was that something that came about as you were working? And tell me about the cover. Okay. So I have to say, uh, honestly, that the title is not mine. I gave the, the, the title I had given the book is Forever Lola. I gave the book the name Forever Lola because at the end of the book, after the 50 years of her career, when she's given a big party, uh, Mara is looking at her and she says, you know, she's forever beautiful, forever effervescent, forever Lola. And so I thought that that was a good name for the title. But the publisher thought that it was important to have her real name in the title so that people would know what the book was about. So they suggested Miss Del Rio, and we went back and forth and we all suggested different names. But Miss Del Rio seemed to be the name that worked the best. So that's how we that's how we came up with the with the title. The cover was designed by HarperCollins artist and a HarperCollins artist. And my idea for the cover was to have a photograph of Lola del Rio because she was gorgeous. She was by a committee of so-called experts, including medical experts and producers and artists. She was deemed the most beautiful woman in the world, if you can imagine that. I know. I thought that was fascinating. In fact, <laughs> when you talked about it in the book, then I went and looked her up because, again, like I said, I didn't really know her. And there were so many photos of her. And she was pretty, but I don't know that I would have, you know, I don't know how you determine the most beautiful woman in the world. I don't either. But I thought it was really interesting. Well, it was she, she was absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. And I wanted to have a picture of her on the cover of the book. But uh, what I was told was that for fiction, they don't use photographs. They only use artist renderings. So right. uh, they, they came up with uh, this cover and I love it. I think it captures very much the essence of the character. She's it, it, kind of an elusive quality. She's, she's looking away from the, the reader, the viewer. Uh, we don't see her face. She's looking at the sea she could be in California, or she could be in France, where she spent some time in France, uh, in Cannes. And I, lo- I love the colors. I think the the it's red and turquoise. I think they're very. It it it's a color that kind of suggests the you know the Mexican background, but at the same time, it's not it's not kitschy. It's not cliche. It's not you know it's not. It, it's it's. I, I think it's a classy cover. I like it. I do too. I like it a lot. And the water is just so reflective and you look at it and you can just kind of see it glimmering. I think it's a stellar cover. She could be in Acapulco. That's what I'm thinking. Well, that's true too. Yes. Or Puerto Vallarta, any number of places. Before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Okay. Uh, I I read books because I love to read, but I also read uh, to get ideas of narrative techniques. Uh, But anyhow, the books that I'm going to mention, I, I read because I love the subject. Um, the first one I want to mention is Returning from Silence by Michelle Sard. Uh, Michelle Sard is a French writer. She lives in Chile, uh, and she didn't find out until she was uh, having her first communion, about to have her first communion, that she couldn't have her first communion because she was Jewish, and she didn't know that she was from a Jewish family. This is a memoir. This is not fiction. She was from a family from Greece. And then when the Nazis came into Greece, the family escaped and they went to France. And 
the family had been through such hell, being a Jewish family in occupied France, that the mother, her mother, Jenny, kind of rebelled against all of that. And she raised her daughter Catholic and sent her to a Catholic school. But then the time came for uh, Michelle to be baptized. And the mother was terrified that the relatives across the street would see her walk down the street in her white communion dress. And they, who were Jewish and knew they were Jewish and knew she was Jewish, would make a big fuss about it. And so but anyhow, so that's that. the The story is extremely powerful. Uh, it's about a woman coming to terms with with her past, uh, with her family, uh, with her mother's decision, uh, and the story, uh, the 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 depiction of the Nazi occupation is absolutely chilling. It's an extremely powerful book. The next one I want to mention is um, "Dream in a Suitcase" by Dominica uh, Radulescu. It's also a a memoir. Radulescu is Romanian, and because of the violence in Romania and the 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 Russian, well, at the time of the Soviet intervention, she dreamed of getting out, and she finally did get out uh, and came to the United States. And so the the story tells about the different challenges she she met, getting used to the culture. The culture is very very different. How she found a job. How she how she adapted to to a new life. It's a, a really fascinating book. The next one I want to mention is uh, a poetry book. It's called Beyond the Time of Words by Marjorie Agosin. Marjorie Agosin is a Chilean writer, uh, and her her topic in this book uh, is uh, writing in 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 a time of pandemic, and her book is full of uh, references to the challenge of writing in a time when people are fearful, people can't go out, uh, people can't go about their normal activities, and yet how poetry gives us hope, gives us meaning, uh, gives form and shape to our lives. Uh, it's, it's truly an, ins- uh, an inspiring book. The last book I want to mention is a novel by um, Maria, Ampara, uh, Maria Amparo Escandon called L.A. Weather, which is it's, it's a very funny and a very uh, beautiful novel about Los Angeles. I don't often like to read about Los Angeles because I'm from there. And, I, <laughs> I don't, and sometimes Los Angeles is glorified in a way that, that to me seems very false. But this this book is really about the real Los Angeles, as I remember it. Right, this is it's a book about a Mexican American family, and the, one of the things that I love about this book is that it does not depict the Mexican American community as a monolithic community. Not everybody is poor and starving. Some people are, uh, but there are also people who are middle class. Some of the people are wealthy. Some of the people are very well educated. Some of the people are farm workers and not educated at all. But it but it really gives uh, uh, an idea of what uh, of what the community is like. And she evokes all kinds of music and all kinds of food. There's this is a book that's very uh, very involved with with food. So it, the it's a, it's a Mexican fa- American family 
Uh, the father was is Mexican-American, born in the States. The mother was born in Mexico, but she's of Jewish background. Uh, and so there's a, this mixture of cultures, which is also very, very real. And just the whole thing seems very authentic. Uh, and uh, as it turns out, this, the father is uh, obsessed with the weather. And he watches the weather report all the time to the point that he seems to be neglecting everything else. And I don't want to tell the whole story because I want your readers, your listeners to to read this book. But when you find out why he's neglecting everything for the weather, then everything comes into into place and you can you can understand what's happening. But the characters are very uh, interesting. They're all very different from one another. And they're all very real, very recognizable and relatable. I really enjoyed that one. I have not read any of the others that you recommend, but I really liked LA Weather. Good. Good. Well, thank you so much, Barbara, for joining me today. And thank you for writing such a wonderful book. I can't wait for everybody else to get to read it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to my podcast. I want to quickly share about this wonderful company I am now partnering with. I am always looking for entities that promote and highlight books and recently came across book clubs, a company who provides all sorts of resources for established and new book clubs, as well as individual readers. My own personal book club recently signed up on book clubs, and the group has been impressed with all of the great tools the site and app provide. The book club's website is linked in my show notes and I hope you will check them out soon. Also, if you like my show, I would be so grateful if you would tell everyone you know about it and rate it on whichever platform you listen on. It truly makes a huge difference and really helps the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and that link is also in the show notes. I hope you will check out some other Thoughts from a Page episodes and have a great day. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.